Well, we are in a series in John chapter 13 through 17, which is Jesus's farewell address to his disciples. Really, it's his, uh, his last teaching to his disciples on how to be one of his disciples before he was arrested and crucified. And this week we come to one of the most well-known images or metaphors of Jesus's entire ministry, of his, really all of his teaching. It is the metaphor of the vine and the branches. So I'm going to begin with chapter 15, beginning with verse 1, go all the way through verse 11. I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be may be full. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him. In prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word from your Son. We pray now that your Spirit would be in and with us and amongst us, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear from him, that this word would dwell deeply in our hearts and minds, that we'd be shaped to it, and we in turn would want to make our home anew, that we'd want to abide in your Son, that we'd want to keep his word just as he has kept yours, O Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus begins this section by making what is actually a striking statement. He says he is the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. Now I say it's striking because in numerous places in the Old Testament, Israel, Israel itself is spoken of as a vine or a vineyard that God planted for himself. And often in those passages, God laments that the vine turned wild or, or bad. Jesus speaks of Israel like this too in, in Matthew chapter 21 with the parable of the wicked tenants who were supposed to steward their master's vineyard, but instead rejected him going so far as killing their master's son. And the parable, as Jesus told it, was a warning to Israel's leadership about how it had tended God's vineyard badly. But the warning was especially pointed in terms of how they had responded to Jesus, God's son, and what would happen if they continued to reject him. But here, Jesus says he is the true vine. He is the true and faithful Israelite. He is the new and faithful Adam. He will do for Israel, that wicked vine, what Israel could not do for himself. So Israel, by Jesus's own word here, was now being constituted in Jesus, 
not say Moses or Abraham or David. So this is why he says he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus's disciples representing really the newly constituted Israel under Jesus, they are the branches in this this metaphor. They, They won't be the only branches, of course, but they are foundational ones. It's why the church has always been devoted to the apostles teaching and preaching about Jesus. In verse two, Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, that is God the Father. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. So Jesus assumes that there will be people who claim to be disciples, who are, you know, say, attached to the church in some way. They call themselves Christians, but are not really disciples at all. And we're all familiar with this in, you know, the so-called Bible Belt of the South. You know, every church contains people who are not really disciples, but who claim to be one or have at least kind of the outward appearance of superficial discipleship. And even in Jesus's own ministry, there were hundreds who followed him, but would not fully commit to him. I mean, just think of Judas, who had been a very committed follower, but at the time of this teaching was well on his way to betraying, betraying Jesus. And this is not just you know, an issue for those who are loosely attached to Christianity, you know, living on the fringes of a church, wearing the occasional you know, Christian t-shirt with you know, some kind of religious words on it, you know, showing up to worship a few times a year or, or knowing enough of the Bible to interpret it badly. No, it can run all the way to the very heart of churches with Christian leadership. You know, there are plenty of churches or ministries whose leadership does not bear fruit, at least not the kind of fruit that Jesus wants. Now, they may be very productive, they may have big ministries with, with big budgets. They, they may be very dynamic speakers and can really draw a crowd. But in reality, they bear little resemblance to the Sermon on the Mount or the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, think back to the parable of the wicked tenants in, in Matthew 21 that we just talked about. But the unfaithful and wicked tenants of the parable were by all appearances the faithful and godly leaders of Israel. I mean, that's how most Israelites saw them. So what Jesus is teaching here are the social parameters of the church. Those who bear fruit are a true branch of the vine. Those who do not bear fruit will be pruned and tossed into the fire. This is similar to what Psalm 1 teaches when it compares the faithful Israelite to a tree planted by living waters that bears fruit in its season. And the unfaithful Israelite that rejects God and is blown away like the dead leaves of October. In a certain sense, Jesus isn't teaching anything here that the Old Testament doesn't teach in terms of faithfulness versus unfaithfulness. Where he is different, though, is that faithfulness now runs through him. And thus we did our profession of faith as we did it. Our faith is in Christ Jesus. He brings us to the Father. So it's Jesus, not Moses, for example, who is the one who represents us to God and speaks God's word to us. But notice, too, that those who are true branches of the vine and do bear fruit, they, too, are pruned. But not because they are unproductive, but rather 
so that they can bear even more fruit. So in other words, as Hebrew 12 uh, argues, God disciplines those he loves. This is a hard word, but it's true. God disciplines those he loves in order to grow his people more and more in Christ. God may meet us where, he, where we are, but he, he does not allow us to stay there. He grows us in him, shaping us more and more into his likeness, teaching us to love the things that he loves. So, you know, just as parents meet babies where they are, but don't allow them to continue to behave as babies when they're five or 15, so too God with us. And the theological term for this is sanctification. It's the growth into holiness, into being the kind of people God intended us to be. It's more and more dying to sin, that is rejecting our, our sinful desires, which is otherwise known as, as repentance, and turning to God. Another way of thinking about this is really what I've just mentioned. It's the growth from immaturity to maturity. So there's a place for being childish. There's a place for that. It's when we're children. Parents should never expect a toddler to know and act like an adult. Even so, as even toddlers recognize and they desire, we should want to grow up. You know, even though our culture rewards and encourages immaturity, we should want to grow past childish self-centeredness and enter into Christian adulthood. And the way this happens is through the taking on of more and more responsibility, which by definition requires discipline, both from parents who willingly discipline their children, saying no to their sinful desires, and with the child herself, you know, learning the art of self-discipline where she doesn't need her parents to tell her no. She can do it for herself. It's learning to say no to yourself more and more. And it's not that you can't enjoy pleasures or things. That's not the point. It's your sinful desires you're saying no to and yes to God and his will. It's learning to grow past, for example, the rote reciting of your kingdom come, your will be done like we do every Sunday to truly, truly desiring God's kingdom and wanting to live it out. It's like what John Calvin once wrote. He wrote, he lives the best and holiest life who lives and strives for himself as little as he can. It's kind of an archaic way of speaking, but what he means is that mature believers in Christ pursue themselves less and pursue God and our neighbors more. As an aside, you know, here, here's one of the best ways I've found to test whether you are actually growing in maturity. What happens? How do you respond when you cannot get your way? So when your schedule is interrupted, when you are told no, when you can't do what you want to do when you want to do it, how do you respond? You know, so when the school enforces a dress code or has a schedule that interferes with your vacation plans, when a table that came into the restaurant after you gets their food before you do, 
when you've been waiting all week to just watch this one thing, but your kid, your kid forgot to tell you that the project is due tomorrow. How do you respond? Do you patiently endure or do you act like a petulant, self-centered child and throw a tantrum? You know, the beautiful thing about God the Father, you know, the one who prunes the branches, is that he says no to us and he patiently endures with our temper tantrums and will grow us, sometimes with us kicking and screaming, into maturity. That's love. Thank God he's, he's that way. Or you know what? None of us would ever bear fruit. Now, in case the disciples were worried... Remember, they've just heard that one of them was going to betray him. And Peter, after he has said, I will never leave you, Jesus says, "Uh, you're gonna. In case they were worried that they might not actually be branches of the vine, Jesus assures them, no, you are. You are. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And in my experience, it's not the people who are worried over whether they actually belong to Jesus who who are in trouble. It's those who take him lightly that are in real danger, and of course, they don't know it. To put it another way, it's those who are ashamed over their sin or feel guilty over it or recognize their struggle to stay faithful. They should not be worried. It's those that don't agonize over anything that think they're doing just fine, that feel no compulsion to change anything about their lives and are happily pursuing themselves even as they call themselves Christians. As Herman Boving put it, he said, there is no faith without struggle. Let me say that again because so often the way faith is betrayed is that it's an easy road that you just get. It is not. There is no faith without struggle. To believe is to struggle, to struggle against the appearance of things as if God is not with us and he is against you and sin is so much better. So in the South, you know, it's easy to call yourself a Christian. I mean, it's still, believe it or not, socially acceptable to do that. It's hard to struggle against your selfishness and put your faith in Christ. That's why, for example, Israel gets her name from Jacob after he literally wrestled with God. I mean, Israel means struggles with God. To be a branch of Jesus is is to struggle against your sin. It's to recognize that God's commands do not come naturally to you and that you have to work to live by them. And because God loves you, he will prune you. He will discipline you. He will cut away the sin in you. And more times than not, it's just not very pleasant. But it's not one thing or the other. It's not either you struggle with God against your own sin or his discipline of you. It's actually both. It's both because it's a relationship. It's why Jesus says these critical words in verses four and five. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that word abide is not one we use very often, probably not even unless we're talking about the book of John. 
You should think of that term uh, as, as more like remaining or, or staying or, or more so live or dwell, as in make your home in Christ. So two weeks ago, we talked about how God makes his home in us through the spirit. And so here Jesus is saying, make your home in me. And Jesus isn't saying, you know, God pursues those who pursue him first. It's actually just the opposite. God pursues us in our sin, just as he did Israel in her slavery in Egypt. Even so, like we saw in the book of Exodus, God wants us to respond to his love. I mean, what loving parent who continually dotes on his baby, get the image, who dotes on his child, nurturing her and providing for her, doesn't hope to be loved by her in return. Of course he does. See, God created humanity to be his children, to be his image bearers, to be his stewards over all he made. He made us to be fruitful. And just as good parents want their children to grow into maturity, he wants us to walk in his ways. But this is impossible apart from him. So like a a dogwood in the desert, trying to live apart and unconnected from God leads only to death. It is impossible to have life apart from Jesus. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus means when he says he is the way, the truth, and the life. It is also impossible to be a fruitful human apart from him too, which is exactly what sinful humanity tries to do. That's why Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in him, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And again, while this is a warning for sure to those outside of the church, which is the way many Christians at least initially read this passage, it is more accurately a warning to those who claim Christ. That is people who claim to be a branch attached to the vine, but are not pursuing him or finding their home in him. You know, the issue Jesus is raising, and, and it's telling, it's so telling to me that he, he raises this question over and over again throughout this final teaching. The question is whether someone is truly a disciple or not. And the issue is never an issue of the intellect or holding to right doctrinal systems, as important as I think those things are, No, he he puts it in terms of how we love him. If we love one another, if we keep his word, and if we keep his commandments. So you can have a very poor understanding of doctrine, yet be a very good disciple. Just as you can have a brilliant mind and and articulate all kinds of deep and probing theological questions and insights and be a, a terrible disciple or really not a disciple at all. The issue then, at least as it typically concerns Presbyterians, is, is not so much what we can conceptualize or, or you know, logically parse out in our doctrine, it's what we treasure. You know, it's why the question of how we respond when we cannot get what we want is such a revealing test of the heart. The question is, is what we choose to abide in. Where do we make our home? Is it Jesus or, or something else? Is it his kingdom or some other one? Is he our treasure or is something else? Probably something he made 
or maybe one of his good gifts? Is that our real treasure? And this is the perpetual question. This, this is the struggle. This is the constant fight. You know, after all, think of it. We always make time for. We always make time for. We prioritize what we treasure. Consider Deuteronomy 6. We used Deuteronomy 6 as our profession of faith last week, and there are at least two core things that passage commands. It's more than that, but there's at least two. First, make God your center. Love him with everything you've got. Build your life around him. Seek his kingdom first. It's just like how Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 puts it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, as Derek Rishmawi recently put it, that must be the default Christian state of mind. Second, fine. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you make fear of the Lord the default state of mind for your life? The answer is by keeping his word and teaching your children to do it too. And the picture Deuteronomy 6 gives is of people, in particular parents, with their children, talking about God, who he is, what he's done for them, and how he's commanded them to live. In that that passage, I encourage you, just go read it. In that passage, you see parents teaching their kids about God, talking about him when they're hanging out, on their way to the store, before bed, when they get up in the morning. That's a day lived in the fear of the Lord. It's just like what Paul argues in Colossians 3. You know, after having given example after example of what it looks like to put on the new self in Christ, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whether it's at the hunt camp or the carpool line, or the locker room, or the break room at work, or the grocery store, or a restaurant. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, do it with the fear of the Lord as your default state of mind. And by the way, parents, the majority, I should say the vast majority of Christian instruction that children receive doesn't come from me or from Sunday school. It comes from parents doing this very thing outside of church. That was true in Moses' day when he wrote those. It's true now. The best I can do is come alongside and assist you. So think of it this way. When Moses gave that law in Deuteronomy 6, there was no printing press. I know that seems obvious, but we don't often think that way. There was no printing press. So how did God's people abide in this word without their own personal copy of the Bible? Well, they went to weekly Sabbath worship and they made pilgrimage on the annual feast days three times a year to the tabernacle. Now, maybe not everyone went on pilgrimage, but the heads of households were supposed to go. That's you, dads. They were supposed to take weekly gathered worship as a non-negotiable and in turn structure their weekly life around God's life and his word. So Sabbath worship, it's foundational. It is the basis for the rest of your weak in the struggle against your sin and making your home in Christ. It's like what Bavink argued. Where's God, where, where God's word is, 
There is God himself. There God's spirit is at work. There God establishes his covenant. There he plants his church. So if you aren't taking God's command to gather together with the people of God around this word seriously, like what we're doing right now, you won't take the abiding, the making your home in Christ, the lifelong commitment to fight against your sin day in, day out. You will not take it seriously either. You just won't. You won't live it out. You won't teach it to your kids. You know, that said, you know, our typical reaction to what Jesus is saying is probably broad agreement, right? We think he's basically right. And, and you may even be feeling, you know, a, a, a twinge of guilt or, or we wouldn't call ourselves Christians. However, even as you may agree with what Jesus teaches, you think maybe the pastor is a little too zealous. I mean, after all, he's the pastor. He has to say these things. And so you continue to reject the call to discipleship in pursuit of something else. You think this other thing, this, this other person, this experience, it's gonna make me happy, I know it is. I won't reject Jesus forever, just for right now, just, just this morning. I just wanna have a little fun. I just wanna lighten up a little. Can you lighten up, Pastor? I just want what I want right now, and then I will give myself to him. But in my experience, those little rejections, which aren't so little at all, they compound themselves and they grow into a chain of rejection that's indicative of a heart that's far from God. It's a heart that's pursuing treasure and maybe it has found its treasure, but it isn't Jesus. And as Jesus makes clear in verse six, this is an incredibly dangerous way to live because it very well may be an indication that you never knew him at all. Well, with verses seven through 11, Jesus moves from obedience to his word to abiding in his love to having joy with God. So as he argues there, if you make your home with Jesus and his word has made its home in you, that is, you have taken his yoke upon you and you are learning from him, you have accepted his lordship and you follow him, then ask whatever you want. That is, seek after him in prayer and it will be done for you. And like we've said in, in weeks past, this is not a request for stuff. It just isn't. No, it's learning to pray in the same ways Jesus prayed and like him, having a heart set on God. And Tim Keller is exactly right when he says, you don't obey God, that is, you don't pursue his word, you don't seek him in prayer to get things. You obey God to get more of God. So when God has made his home in you and you are seeking to make your home in him, you will be fruitful and God will be glorified in it. Now, one of the unfortunate side effects of the revivalism of the 19th and 20th centuries is that we expect fruit to look like a Billy Graham crusade. When in reality, the fruit most often produced by a godly life are in simple, I mean simple daily acts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, and self-control, not least of which, gentleness too. In our culture, if you can learn to say no to yourself, that is the fruit of self-control, then you should be confident that God is at work in you. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's why in Colossians 3, everything Paul describes in terms of fruitfulness are either character traits like humility or kindness or involve things like repentance and forgiveness. You know, Jesus doesn't say, if you keep my commandments, I will finally do for you what you've always wanted. Or I will finally love you. No, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will find your home in my love. If you purposely keep your wedding vows, if you actually guard and protect them, you will love your spouse. Choosing faithfulness to your spouse over all others, sacrificing your desires for that person is what love looks like. I mean, think of it this way. God purposely chose to love you. He committed himself to you at great cost. For you to love him in return is to choose him over all others, to sacrifice your wants and desires for his at what may be great cost to you too. Love is the choice and the commitment to put someone else above your own wants and desires. And the fear of the Lord is the choice to put him above all others. So when the romance dies down in the marriage, and it always does, when the romance dies down in marriage and people start to think about leaving, it's an indication that they never actually love the person to begin with. No, they they love their own feelings and we're using the other person to that end. That's why dating is so often typically a a selfish endeavor. You know, you, you don't obey God to get stuff. You're not dating him. You obey God to get more of God because you love him. And all of this leads to joy. Now, joy is not exactly happiness, though, of course, there's happiness in it. Happiness tends to be circumstantial. Happiness ebbs and flows. Joy is different because it's better. It's better. You can have joy in bad circumstances or even in suffering. Jesus wants his people to see beyond their circumstances, not just to the life to come, which will be beyond our imagination, but to what we have in Christ right now. So when you see that you are in Christ, as Gerald Borchert argues, it will not produce a superficial, fairy tale like happily ever after attitude, but a deep sense of well-being and joy that our lives are united in the vine of Jesus and thus in his self-giving death and powerful resurrection. So if you want to see what joy looks like, if you want to see what joy looks like, just go read John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and the disciples' reaction to the resurrection. We don't have joy because we are pain-free or materially secure or have whatever we want. We have joy because Christ lives and we are in him and he is in us. Derek Radner, reflecting on 
M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, says that a, a healthy, mature, and flourishing life, what, you know, what we've been describing as making your home in Christ, what this entire series has been about, requires, this is necessary, it requires embracing the path of suffering, which we so vigorously avoid. That's the choice. It's a commitment. This road, he says, typically involves at least three things. First, delaying gratification by doing hard things in view of that future joy. So you may not have joy right now, but you trust Jesus when he says you will have it eventually. You know, so much of what I'm after in this series is not so much about resisting the world as if the culture is the boogeyman or whatever, though of course we should resist it. It's actually resisting our selfish, childish, sinful desires by repenting of them. It's saying no to being led by our wants and yes to God and his word. It's living more and more for the good of our spouses and for our children and for the church and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. As Chris Hutchinson points out, he says, if you want to resist the devil or the world or the flesh or culture, you don't take up a defensive position. You take up a repentant position. Now, all those things I just mentioned are real threats, but the problem starts with us. The struggle is within our hearts and flows out to our words and our actions. And that leads to the second thing. The mature life takes responsibility for our lives rather than blaming, denying, offloading, or running. Again, this too is a choice. It's a move towards making our home in Christ. So instead of running away from godly teaching or rejecting discipline or or shifting blame away from ourselves when we encounter that that discipline, and you know how this works. Listen, I know what I did, but it's not my fault. I'm really not to blame for all this. And, And that guy, he is so much worse. Or how dare you? Call me out. Where where you get off saying what you've said? Well, we, you know, ignore our issues altogether, maybe rolling our eyes at how puritanical all of this sounds. Or we just choose to simply live as if there is no God. No, instead, what we must do, what we should do is take the position of the disciples, like when Jesus said one of them would betray him. Do you know what they said? Is it me, Lord? You know, grace only means something to you. It only really begins to permeate your life when you realize the answer is yes, it's you. And you rather that not be the case. And that leads to the third thing. It's being dedicated to the truth by committing to total honesty, to the challenges of others, rather than attacking, defending, or running into examining ourselves with humble curiosity. That's tough. So instead of pursuit of self, it's self-reflection. 
in light of Jesus's word with help from the people of God. It means you have to open yourself up to criticism. It means you have to know people well enough that they can say a thing in your life and you've got to be willing to take the hit. And I I can tell you it's hard. It is so hard. And it's a choice. It's a daily commitment. It's the lifelong struggle against yourself. But remember, God has chosen you. He has sided with you. He has given you life with him. He has made his home in you. And this is all gift. Words cannot describe how big this is. So choose him in return. Long for maturity. Pray for it. Seek to make your your home in him. Ask him for the strength to have the fear of the Lord as your default mindset. Pray for him to work in you. Repent of yourself daily. Why? Because as Jesus makes very clear in our passage, it is the difference between life and death. And we want to be on the way of life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are so patient. You endure with your people so well. Thank you for being the best parent. Thank you for being the best teacher. Thank you for being the best spouse, the best friend. Thank you for abiding with us. May we in turn, because you have given us so much, choose you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.